chapter 4 from verse 13, a reading which has the same theme of worship that we found in the Old Testament passage in Psalm 122. When the devil had finished all this tempting, that is the tempting of Jesus, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he said to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Thanks be to God for this portion of his own word. Now I would like you this morning, before we come to the Lord's table and by way of meditation and preparation for coming to the Lord's table, to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 122, the 122nd Psalm, that you remember began with the familiar words, I rejoiced when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And I want to speak to you this morning, both in view of coming to the Lord's table together and in view of our beginning a new year of 1988 as a fellowship and congregation of the Lord Jesus, I want to speak to you concerning the joy that so many people miss and to base what I have to say by way of meditation upon this lovely psalm, one of the 15 psalms of ascents in the Psalter. Now, of all the Old Testament psalms and verses mentioning the house of the Lord, I believe that none is better known to Christian men and women than Psalm 122 and the first verse of the psalm. It has been very often the very first verse that is taught to little children in our covenant families as they begin to memorize the scripture. I was glad when they said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. And it has often been the favorite psalm of many ripe and mature and elderly Christian saints. The assembling of God's people in the temple or in the church with glorious anticipation that his presence will be there and their fellowship with one another will be real and wonderful indeed. And this is the theme of Psalm 122. 
the psalm that has been memorized by millions. And as we look at it this morning together in the light of the communion service and particularly in the light of our coming into a new year, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit might take these simple themes that we are sharing together this morning and write them in living letters of fire upon the hearts and minds and the consciences of us all. The joy that so many people miss is the joy of worship together in the house of the Lord. Now, this is my conviction, and there might be many in the vicinity of this congregation and in our world and in society around us today who would challenge that conviction and say, well, that is not the conviction of my heart. That is not the great driving principle of my life in 1988. And therefore, I believe, beloved, this morning, we need to ask ourselves the question, why do we share the joy of the psalmist? And why do we long and anticipate that others might share that joy for themselves, the joy that so many people miss, the joy of worshiping in God's house. And I want this morning to provide five answers to that question as we come to the table of the Lord together. And the first answer is this, that we rejoice surely in the house of the Lord because it is the house of perspective. And we see that, don't we, in verses 1 and 2. I rejoiced with those who invited me to go to the house of the Lord, says this man. And then when he has arrived there, he says, Our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. Now, is it not true today that the problem at the root of so many of the world's needs and perplexities is quite simple? The problem in personal lives, the problem in national situations, the problem in global enterprises comes down to the same thing in the end. That the majority of men and women who will come into 1988 have a distorted perspective upon life and not a true one at all. And this is at the root of so many of the problems of our fellow men. That they are too near to their problems and to life to estimate them correctly. I wonder if you've ever gone into an art gallery, as I'm sure you have in some great American museum, and you've seen a famous artist's painting hanging on the wall. He's painted on a wide canvas. And in order to understand that picture properly and to appreciate it, you have to stand back from it and look at it at a distance. You have to have a perspective of distance upon it in order to appreciate it well. And this is what the psalmist is saying to us in the opening verses of the psalm. So it is with your life, he says. Stand back from your life. 
Stand back from your problems as you come into 1988. And in the presence of the eternal and ever-blessed God, look at your life and your situation in that high and heavenly perspective. I was glad when they said to me, come in to the presence of the eternal God. Isn't it true with so many of our lives what the American writer Max Lerner once wrote about the five-goal system of American society? Success and prestige and money and power and security. These are the things that the majority of Americans around us are living for. And when they fail to realize their goal, they are depressed and insecure and defeated and fearful as to what life is bringing to them. But it is not so, is it, with the people of God, for they have a true perspective and true goals in life that arise from worship as we come into the Lord's house and see our lives under the aspect of eternity, as we have the spiritual dimension like a floodlight shed upon all our daily living, our successes and defeats, our failures and our achievements, and the grace of God surrounds us and strengthens us and involves us. And we look up and we see the greatness of God. And we look around us and we see that we are in the same world with our living Christ. And we look at ourselves and we see, beloved, not just tradesmen or teachers or professors in a university or workers in a factory or secretaries or whatever it might be, but we see in ourselves children of the living God. Heirs of an everlasting kingdom. And we know that God is doing his work in our lives to his glory. It is the house of perspective. And this is what happens when we come into that house as a worshipping congregation. Our perspective, lost for a season it might be, in the other days of the week is suddenly restored to us again. But secondly, it is not only the house of perspective, it is the house of fellowship to which the psalmist invites us. If you look at verses 3 and 4, it is to the house of the Lord that the tribes go up, emphasizing that Christian fellowship is local in different places, by different people who worship in different ways. But it is also universal, for Jerusalem is built as a city that is closely compacted together. There is a unity in this diversity of the fellowship of God's people. Look at it with me, if you will, in this light. We come to God usually singly, don't we? We are converted and we are born again in this way or at this time by this means. But we come into the kingdom one by one. But beloved, I have to tell you this morning, we cannot live our Christian lives that way. 
There is a social dimension to the Christian life. There is a corporate dimension to it. There is a public dimension to it. And this is all worthily expounded to us by this godly man as he speaks of the house of God as being a house of fellowship. The local fellowship to which the tribes of the Lord go up. Isn't this the test of the loyalty of any fellowship? Whether it can go local. It's very easy, you see, to believe in good government, to take an illustration. It's much harder to support your local senator. It's very easy to believe in motherhood. It's much more difficult to be one. It's very easy to confess our faith, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, in the Holy Catholic Apostolic Church. But it's very much harder to be a local member of an unholy local congregation, isn't it? But the psalmist reminds us that it all begins here. And in Westminster Congregation in 1988, my goal and my desire for you and for us all is that we might share together and that we might work together and we might pray together as we are doing this afternoon in the specially called prayer meeting. And above all else, that we might grow together in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And what a great goal for a local fellowship this truly is. And though it is imperfect, this fellowship is God's gift to us. And we are to participate in it and be part of it. But do you notice in these verses, he reminds us also of the universal fellowship. Jerusalem, like a city that is built and compacted together. What is this if it is not a figure of the church universal? And as F.W. Faber says in one of his hymns, we make God's church too narrow by false limits of our own. And we can do that, beloved. And the correction for it as we meet here, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, is this. We should remember as we gather here, every time we meet, we should remember the church universal. We should endeavor to imagine the church universal, the glorious body of believers, worshiping in their tens of thousands, in every tongue and in every race and in every nation and in every denomination. The forms of worship may differ. The ceremonies with which they worship are diverse. The worship itself may be different. The buildings in which they meet may vary. But it is one glorious church of the living God. And as one well-known preacher once said, if I could shout, Christ is risen across the thousands of miles to Uganda and Bangladesh and Bengal and Manchuria and Brazil and Jamaica, back would come the cry, drowning out every other sound. Yes, she is risen indeed. Hallelujah! And we have the perspective 
of a fellowship that is universal. And I never sing the lines of that lovely evening hymn without being profoundly moved, as o'er each continent and island the dawn leads on another day, the voice of prayer is never silent, nor dies the strains of praise away. The house of fellowship. Thirdly, the psalmist reminds us it is the house of witness in verse 5. There are thrones, says the psalmist there, of judgment, the thrones of the house of David. And I believe the psalmist is reminding us of the privilege we have as Christians in the church to be witnesses to the Lord who has drawn us out of darkness into his own light. Have you, I wonder, ever thought of this? As you have driven down this road, Belford Road, and you've passed our lovely building and our sanctuary gleaming white with its new steeple, have you said to yourself, what a witness this building is, even empty? Why? Because in the midst of the secular city, with all its bright lights and its broken hearts, and all its needs, as men and women drive past, it is a reminder of the things that really belong to their peace, what their real needs are, even though they refuse them and neglect them to their cost. Even empty, the house of God is a witness to heaven. But what about when it's full? Isn't it much more a witness then? Of course it is. Our presence here is a sermon every Lord's Day to the vicinity. Have you thought as you start your car up in the driveway and you crowd your children into the back seat and you drive down the road that your presence in the house of God that morning and your departure from it is a witness that you are saying to the vicinity and community around you, my priorities are here. This is the great dynamo that drives my life. I was glad when they said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates. O Jerusalem. And it is the more powerful because it is informal, it is deprofessionalized, if you like. They expect me to go because I'm a minister. But when you go, what a witness and a lovely testimony it really is. I believe it is John Gladstone, the well-known minister of the York Minster Park Baptist Church in Toronto in Canada, who once gave the illustration of a church built in the very center of a city, and it was surrounded by office blocks and towering high-rise flats and apartments. And finally, the congregation that had dwindled decided to sell the building to a developer, and it was demolished. And then suddenly, the workers in that city noticed something they'd never noticed before, that that little church in the heart of the business world, had shielded the side of a building next to it from all the grime and the rays of the sun. And its outline was imprinted upon the office wall. And even though it had gone, in a sense, its witness continued. 
There is no measuring line, beloved, by which we can measure the effect of our being here, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, year after year, month after month, week after week. It is the house of God's witness, and he will use it to his own glory. Now, fourth, it is the house of healing. In verses 6 to 8, I wonder if you read this psalm, and as you read it, you notice that three times over the word peace is mentioned. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Peace be within your walls. For my brethren and companions' sakes, I will say peace be within you. And the root meaning, as many of you will know, of that Hebrew word for peace, shalom, is health and wholeness and salvation above all else, involving both body and soul in a wholesomeness that God alone can give to sinners as his gift. And this is precisely what we are to find as we come into the house of the Lord. Not only a house of perspective and of fellowship and of witness, but of healing. Ah, but you say to me this morning, when I come to the house of God, I'm disturbed very often. And I'm challenged. And I feel at times rebuked by the preaching of the word of God. And I say to you, yes. Because true worship will always have this effect. We cannot live comfortably as sinners with our sins unchecked in the presence of a holy God. Nor should we expect to. And we cannot shrug off our responsibilities as Christian men and women. In a desperately needy world, the Holy Spirit will challenge us. As I was recently at that great student conference in Urbana with its theme, Should I not be concerned? And of course I must be. But listen, that is not the only experience in the house of God, thank God. We are healed, aren't we? And we are comforted. And we are restored again, times without number. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me beside the quiet waters and in the green pastures. And you know the mass of troubles that an ordinary congregation represents is simply incredible. And I'm glad that many of us don't know that mass and what it is. The resentments and the anxieties and the guilts and the doubts and the fears and the longings and all those other ingredients that go into making us what we are. Yet through worship, through prayer, through preaching, we find healing for those very conditions that have brought us here in the first place. The God of all comfort draws near, and he says, Peace I give you for your inward hurts. And the Savior, our great physician, draws near to us and lays his healing hands upon us, and he makes us well again as he did in the days of his flesh. So it has been for many, beloved, and so it will be again for us 
in this new year of 1988, the house of healing. Peace be within your walls. And finally, as I close, is it not also the house of remembrance, verse 9, where the psalmist says, for the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. The importance of memory cannot be exaggerated. It is true, as someone has said, we are what we remember. And sadly, is it not true in your life this morning that you often remember the things that you should forget, the hurts and the insults and the injustices that have been heaped upon you by others, the hard course you are traveling through life, and then you forget, excuse me, you forget the things that you should remember. Above all, the grace and the goodness and the glory of God. And as the psalmist was held to his faith by memory, for the sake of the house of the Lord, I will seek your prosperity. So the Christian is held to his faith by memory. And there is, as we come to this table this morning, no more important command in all of Scripture than the one spoken to us by our Savior when he said, This do in remembrance of me. And we remember together, do we not, in the house of the Lord. But our history is so different from the history that the secular society around us remembers. Our history is in one birth that is paramount. It is in one life that is central. It is in one death that is redemptive. It is in one rising again from the dead that signifies victory over sin and life forevermore. And it is these things that are our history and we remember together as we come into the house of the Lord this morning. In the fullness of time, God sent his Son. God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. He showed himself alive to many witnesses. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, this morning, as the threshold to the Lord's Supper, as the threshold to the new year, it is the house of perspective to which we have come. It is the house of fellowship to which we have come. It is the house of witness, the house of healing, the house of remembrance. Do you say in your heart this morning, let us go to the house of the Lord. I was glad when they said to me, let us find our feet standing in the midst of Jerusalem. Don't miss this joy in 1988. Don't miss what God is waiting to give you. And so your testimony will be like that of another psalmist. 
Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let us pray. Our gracious and loving Father, bless this meditation to all our hearts today, for much do we need it, and prepare us through it as we come now to that table and fellowship with Christ that is so rich and precious and meaningful to us for his glory's sake. Amen.